Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radha Palamariu, Global Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Specializing in global board level and executive search, my job is also to connect you with global experts, thought leaders and executives in all things supply chain. And today I'm delighted to have with us Matthew Tillman, the CEO and founder of Haven. Uh, Haven was founded in 2014 to help commodity firms actually automate logistics, collaborate with partners and gain value insights into their supply chains. Uh, basically, the goal was to essentially serve as the sales force for logistics, capturing the end-to-end workflow of shipping cargo. Heaven supports customers around the world from offices in Singapore, Switzerland and San Francisco, and they raised so far a total of $16 million. Prior to founding the company, Matt held technology and product leadership roles at several finance and advertising companies specializing in artificial intelligence. But before that, he was the son and grandson of truckers. So he's the first actually in three generations not to drive a truck for a living. So that's an, that's an interesting story uh, over there as well. Matt, pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Our, our pleasure. So tell us a little bit maybe about, uh, about Haven and the story of the company and, and what's his, what is it trying to achieve? <clears throat> sure. So, I mean, Haven started in 2014. We, we really founded it. After having been, and I'd been in advertising automation for eight years prior to that, using machine learning to automate the distribution of advertising. And prior to that, I was in, uh, I built um, software to support algorithmic trading in the financials and futures and forex space. Um, and, and in both of those industries, they were using data to make decisions in real time. And uh, my co-founder, Jeff Weiner, who was ex-Apple supply chain, uh, he and I were having a conversation one night for dinner, and I was telling him about how I, I tried to book a, a cargo to send a truck to South America. It's a very bougie problem you have after selling a company. And, um, my wife had okayed me racing across South America in, in a truck like a maniac. And so I went about trying to book freight, and I was telling him that how ridiculous the process was of price discovery in this industry. It reminded me a lot of bond pricing in the early 80s. You can read about letters, poker, and all this type of thing. And... Um, and so we saw that there was a, a real challenge around helping people communicate better when it came to either price discovery or documentation execution, whatever it is, that end-to-end supply chain, helping people just operate with more efficiency using data like you use in, in every other industry. And that's, that's really why we started the company, um, just to, to help customers automate more of their logistics. Got it. So basically, I mean, coming back to the, because I think it's a good analogy with the Salesforce for logistics, right? It's basically, uh, it's kind of like software, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like a software to automate your, your logistics. That's right. Yeah, we're a pure software provider, so um, we can't, you know, get you a sweet deal on customs or anything like that. That's not, that's not where we play in the space. Um, we sell uh, SaaS-based subscription, annual subscription license software um, that helps you do everything from automate the execution of documentation. So everything from generating shipping instructions through a bill of lading draft and, and modification on bill of lading, uh, even in runtime during shipment on the water, um, clear down to rate card management and amendment management, which is uh, currently a nightmare in the industry, nightmare of spreadsheets and emails. So as a company, we're focused on helping you remove email and poor sources of unstructured messaging from your organization. So very much like a Salesforce. Yeah. Well, make it simple, right? So uh, you're, you're basically making it simple. Um, and this works for, I mean, you, your problem was, uh, and that's an interesting story, drive a truck in South America. So I mean, you, hopefully we'll get to that as well. So you, you sent a truck to South America, but obviously this, this applies to pretty much anything, right? From sending a truck to sending a, I don't know. Um, that's right. That's smaller right. items as well, I guess. That's, 
That's right. Yeah, we don't typically focus on the parcel space. Um, not so much because the product doesn't work for that, but because we're focused on large, large volume shippers, um, because that's where the problem is most acute. Um, they have razor thin margins, and so every dollar they spend on operations is a dollar out of the margin. Right? It's a, it's very straightforward at that level, and the margins are so thin that those dollars matter. Whereas if you're in you know shipping personal effects like I was trying to do, you're going to pay whatever it is. But, you know, let's say it's four grand for that that container to get a truck to South America, and then uh, goodness knows how many people you have to pay once you get there, right? In order to get the truck out of the container, so. That type of thing, there's a lot of space. There's a lot of room in that type of shipping. When you're looking at aluminum trade or aluminum, since we're in Singapore, trade to be proper, uh, copper trade, something like that, manganese, there's razor thin margin. The premiums are really well defined. They're often contracted. And when you have a situation like that, logistics makes up such a huge variable cost that you want to be as streamlined and as efficient as possible. And the way that these commodity trading firms were working is that every time they open up a new trade lane or establish a relationship with a new counterpart, they have to almost create a new logistics team or add more operational headcount to a trading desk. And so price of their commodity was decreasing, margins were decreasing, operational expenses were increasing. And so that's a great place for technology play, especially automation technology to play. Yes, yes. And actually, that, that, that's where you started, right? So you, you focused actually on commodity firms first and foremost, and probably they're still the bulk of your clients? or uh, They are, yeah. I think um, people have used Haven to ship everything from toothbrushes and razor blades to, you know, millions of tons of copper and aluminum and all those types of things. And, and so it really works for everything, but they were the bulk of our, our focus because, like I said, that, it's such an acute problem, acute challenge that they have. Yeah. And... and, and uh... Tell us a little bit on how, and it might be an obvious question, but just to go into the, the, the depth of it, how do you differentiate yourself from a traditional broker? Because I know you're quite adamant about your brand as a software company. Yeah, well, I think the, the one very specific way is that we can't uh, provide you freight. So uh, we had a customer um, call us and they said, hey, what are your rates like for X, Y, and Z? And I said, well... I, I don't know. It's a bit like asking Excel to get you rates. Um, we can't really do that. The thing that you can do is you, we have a procurement tool you can license. It's a little bit like Ariba. Um, and so you can license that tool and use that to connect with your network of, of whether they be bulk brokers or container lines or what have you, 3PLs, whoever it may be. Um, but in terms of freight, it's, it's really funny. We used to get the, because in this space, there's so many brokers, like everybody's a broker. And people would call us and say, hey, what are rates like from here to here? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> you tell you tell me. Yes. Um, so, uh, so no, we, we focus purely on the software. There's so much opportunity just in this. The industry is so big. There's so much opportunity. We really focused on software for BCOs specifically. Uh, there were people making software to help the shipping lines utilize their assets better. There were people making software for the freight forwarders to help kind of arbitrage and take advantage of market opportunity better. And we saw a, a large gap, pretty much only filled by SAP and uh, and Oracle and JDA and GD Nexus and these legacy software providers. Um, so we have, saw a real opportunity to bring automation to the BCO themselves. Yes, yes, and it's a sweet spot. It's a sweet spot, definitely. Um, how do you get your data? Because that's, that's a key. I mean, that's a key crucial part of it, right? I mean, how do you make sure actually how do you get healthy data to be more accurate? Yeah, I mean, this industry is not at a lack of data, but it's it's usually not not the cleanest data. Um, I think there's a few things that we learn from other industries. The first is most of it's customer-based data. So a customer uploads their rate cards, 
Um, it's not so much a trick of getting the data. It's making sure that the customer doesn't have to do any additional work in order to use your platform. So if they upload a rate card in a traditional system, you've got like humans in the back end keying in all the rates to you know all the different port pairs. That's not really operationally efficient. So we built a lot of tooling around uh, being able to capture rate cards in any format from any of the shipping lines and automatically um, extract the data from that. And that was the first step. It's kind of this like rate management tool called the Rate Explorer. The second piece is how do you capture information that's effectively just dialogue, right? Global trade is two people and, and then adding more vendors to the equation, but a couple of people that just want to trade goods, right? But there's so many different hands out. There's so many different people participating in this conversation. That conversation happens over email today or WhatsApp or WeChat if you're in China, right? So how do you capture that information? We've spent a lot of time building tools to capture that data and to clean it. Uh, to scrub the information and get it into a single location. Mm -hmm. So that part of the platform works effectively like TripIt. If you have anybody, if you travel or if you have any travelers on your, on your podcast, TripIt basically takes all the data from all the different ship, the, the air carriers and all the different hotel providers, takes all your confirmation, booking confirmations, et cetera, all your rates, and collects that information and puts it into their app so you have a single centralized source of truth for your trips. Right. And we saw that as being a huge opportunity for the freight logistics industry. So we did the same thing for uh, 50 plus carriers and something like 1,100 different freight forwarders. And, uh, and so we're able to intercept all those emails, all that conversation, and create structured data from them. And that yeah. gives us everything from you know, booking documentation. We get that from both the, the email stream, the conversation stream, as well as EDI, as well as API, depending on who the carrier is. And so it's just all these data sources that we had to be able to collect. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic, right? Because I mean, I think that's that's probably one of I mean, that's why it saves a lot of time, right? Because it's the, you waste a lot of time trying to match, mix and match the different sources of truth, right? So if you have one single source of truth, that saves a lot of your time, testing and, and, and that's right. Yeah, yeah it's typically all done by. I mean, our customers are usually the types of companies that do their logistics in house. And when you're doing logistics in house, you have a person that does nothing but go to every single carrier website on a daily basis copy and paste tracking information into a spreadsheet and send the spreadsheet around to the rest of the company so that people know what their on-the-water risk is. And so there's those types of things that we focused on automating. We do everything, you know, we, we automate the types of things you're doing today, basically in a similar way to the way you're doing them today, but with machines instead of people. And so you go from, you know, eight hours of shipment on manual processes, documentation to sub one hour human labor per shipment with regards to documentation, customs clearance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's a massive benefit to our customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, how important, let's talk a little bit about also the series of investments that you, you went uh, through, you've gone through. How important was it to, to, to attract the investors and how did it impact your growth speed? Well, so I think... There's a common misconception, especially in Southeast Asia, in terms of um, how VC as an asset class works, uh, because it's a different type of asset class, right? You have you know, real estate, which everybody's obsessed with in these parts of the world, that's part of the world. Um, and that's because they haven't had a stock market that's returned 30 years in a row, right? And so the asset class itself is something very particular. And so what this means is, what I mean by this is, Haven has a large TAM, a total addressable market. Mm -hmm. because unlike a broker, we're not going to fight for 5 to 15% of a customer's inventory so that we can sell them, so that we can arbitrage freight rates and sell them insurance and all these sorts of things on the back end. Uh, we sell software. And so as a market, every shipper in the world can use software. 
Right. So first of all, it's important that you have a big addressable market. Yes. I actually, I think the, the, I was reading the numbers where it was staggering. It was like $1.6 trillion uh, market that you're, you're addressing. So that's huge. That's right. Yeah, it's a, ma- it's a massive market. And I think there's, it's funny, when you go to pitch a VC, you don't really have to pitch that uh, it's a big market because they look at it and they're like, okay, well, it's everything that I've touched or eaten or whatever, yeah. right? So it's, it's already a big market. But I think you want to see that it's a big market and it's growing in certain areas, right? And that our take on it's going to be a little bit different. So we had to have a very different take than everybody else because there are so many startups out there that are just freight forwarders. Some are freight forwarders in disguise. Most are just freight forwarders, though. In fact, legally registered in the U.S. as freight forwarders. And so we looked at it and we said, well, everyone has built like a freight forwarder or they built software for freight forwarders. So we're going to focus exclusively on this BCO market to give them the information they need to make decisions to be able to automate more of that, bring more control in-house over their logistics. And that was a unique value proposition within the VC community when we started in 2014. Um, the second piece is to raising money is you have to grow at a scale that that asset class is pitched. So what that means is if you're an investor, you have liquidity providers, limited partners behind you, right? They are uh, large pension pension funds, the sovereign wealth fund here in Singapore, et cetera, right? And you need to be able to grow at a pace that will return the value of that entire fund. And so software companies are geared to doing that because they get network effects, they get great economies of scale, great margins, et cetera. We have, you know, uh, this year we'll process 3.2 million tons of cargo, 3.8 million tons of cargo, somewhere in there. Um, And that's one year after launching our TMS, right? That type of thing can really only happen through a software company. Right, those those are big numbers, very fast. That's like ten percent the size of Penalpina in less than a year and a half of, mm-hmm. of operating the business, and that's because we don't have to hire five hundred headcount to support that. We've automated so much of that workflow, and our, our customers don't have to subsequently hire all those people yes. as well. That's a really good fit for VC asset class. So after you get all of that together, you go out to the market with a package that says, "Here's the rate of growth. Here's the rate of return. Here's the TAM. Here's our competitive landscape." And then it's really just a matter of negotiating the price and the size of the raise that you need. Um, the other piece is you ask, like, how does it help you grow? This is the biggest thing for startups, is that if you don't have the right management in place and you take a bunch of money and your management doesn't know what to do with it, then it's a completely pointless endeavor. You, you shouldn't even raise the money. So you have to have the people on staff that you can trust to process the dollars. Mm-hmm. It's not really about what number you raise. It's about how much can you process, right? Um, and return the metrics to your investors and you have agreement. So that's really the, those are the big tricks about fundraising. There's no other, you know, otherwise you just go, you know, you talk to 70 different firms and, you know, you get five term sheets and you figure out which one you want to go with, right? Yes, yes. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward math. Yes, great. Back to Excel, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <in> my- <laughs> Um, and, and what made you come to, to Asia and Singapore in, in particular? Because I know that there is a specific uh, reason also why Singapore, right? In... There's, a, there's a couple of them. I mean, obviously Singapore, uh, big trading hub. Uh, a lot of commodity trading firms here, a lot of volume here, and all within a few blocks of where we're sitting right now. Uh, so I think from a, from a lead gen perspective, it's very straightforward, right? You want that. You want a low cost of customer acquisition at a, at a software company. The second thing is that um, I happen to be here, if you want the back of the actual story on this, I happen to be here with my co-founder in 2014. I had just uh, sold my previous company, media company. 
uh, to the company called Conversance. It was a really good exit, and I was just done with media. And I wanted to be in a, a less corrupt industry, so I picked shipping, naturally. Uh, and I love how you picked the term less corrupt. Less corrupt <laughs> not industry. Industry. Yeah, exactly. less corrupt. I'm not sure that that worked either. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I was here in Southeast Asia and uh, with my wife and, and uh, a couple of friends, one of which is my co-founder. And we, we floated the idea that price discovery was broken to a couple of investors here locally. And we had a partnership meeting, probably because my prior exits, we had a partnership meeting on the following Monday with a major LP which um, here in town, which is Tomasic. And, uh, and so it was a really fascinating turnaround, a quick turnaround, just to show you how interested this country is specifically in terms of being able to capture trade flows. So if you look at ports and you look at the way trade changes over time, Singapore's heavily invested in automating ports, but Singapore, Port of Singapore Authority, they actually own 27, I believe, I may get that number wrong, I think it's 27 ports around the world. So it's not just Singapore. And I think that's people, a lot of, that's the thing a lot of people forget is that they care about being able to capture revenue on trade flows all over the world. And so they really want, wherever trading is occurring, that's where the Singapore government to be and I think it's a really smart position to take and so we uh, we kind of fell in love with the country and the space just because of the attitude that they have towards trade it's such an important vital part of the economy here um, so that's that's really why we're here mm. uh, talents uh, obviously on the logistics side especially early on before we had a lot of those automations in place logistics talent here is, is phenomenal so it's really great to draw from yeah um And, and uh, if we had to, to, to dig a little bit deeper, what are some of your biggest partners and supporters of the company? Because uh, I think you also work closely with, uh, is it EDB or the Singapore government? Or? Yeah, well, so uh, all of them, all the different agencies here are, have been fantastic for us in terms of uh, support. And just like little things, like I need a real estate broker that'll help you out or, or um, you know, when you're getting bank accounts and things like that. Just really smart structures for how they help entrepreneurs set up over here. Entrepreneurship. And IP generally is uh, is really important to Singapore as as a country. And uh, for us, when you're picking countries to set up offices in, you want countries that have a certain amount of travel. We're in Singapore and Switzerland, which is where we host our data in Singapore and Switzerland. So we're set up really well for commodities for trade purposes. We're not actually a U.S. company, right? We've we've got a U.S. branch, which is R and D, but the rest of the company is all international and. It was done that way to provide, in fact, the name of the company, Haven, literally means a safe place to trade, a safe harbor. Mm -hmm. That's why we picked the name. And so you look at Singapore as a safe place to trade because the rule of law is very strong here. And, yes. and that's really, really important. So in terms of the government here has been very supportive of the company. Um, and I think the thing that shocks people is the shipping lines have actually been very supportive of Haven because we're not trying to disintermediate the relationship that they have with their customers, right, in order to get full of benefit out of Haven, you really have to have shipping line relationships. So um, I think that's been something that people have been shocked by is just how helpful shipping lines have been for us. All of them have been super nice to us. Actually. Yes. Yeah. But let's talk about the three pills because the shipping lines might have been might have been nice to you, but how about the three pills? I mean, did you have any challenges with those guys? Because I mean, ultimately, you could potentially take away some of their cheese. No? Yeah, well, so I think... Here's the thing with 3PLs is if our customer wants to use a 3PL or a carrier, they onboard a 3PL or a carrier and it works just fine. Like we don't jump in the middle there. I think there's a trend that is irrespective of Haven success. There is a trend in the industry where more and more customers are bringing the basic basics of logistics in-house. They want to take more control over the logistics, especially the high volume customers, right? 
So when you look at 3PL, they really don't have a market there. Anyways, however, what I will say is that when customers are evaluating, our customers are evaluating 3PLs, and they use them in certain trade, trade lanes for customs purposes or for warehouses space or for trucking contracts that the 3PL manages, that, that adds a lot of value to our customers, right? When you take risk, 3PL is meant to offset risk. It's meant to offset the risk of headcount. It's meant to offset the risk of warehousing space. It's meant to offset the risk of whatever it may be. Right? 3PLs and freight forwarders, I'm going to use them interchangeably because they're effectively the same thing. Or at least there's 100% overlap on the products that they offer. Um, the problem with that model, though, is it introduces selection bias in the supply chain. A 3PL gets a primary, secondary, and tertiary carrier they're allowed to choose from when the origin at a BCO books, right? Origin BCO says, I need a pickup. Here's my second primary, tertiary, secondary, and tertiary carriers. You pick which one works. And then what happens is there's a lot of visibility loss between that selection and the cost in that selection and what the customer ultimately wanted. And so what we really provide when a customer is using 3PLs, and we do have customers that use 3PLs all the time, DHL, Kunanagal, Panelpeen, all these guys. Um, what they really look for is, is the 3PL servicing their business in the healthiest way for the business versus the 3PL's margin. That's number one. And number two is, what value add can they provide that I don't want to take on as a BCO? Does Kunanagal have warehouse space? Does Kunanagal have trucks that they're going to buy and assets that they're going to buy? Do they have planes that they're chartering? All that is really valuable, and I think there's going to be a place for the 3PL for a long time, so long as they focus on asset ownership and offsetting the asset risk that a customer doesn't want to take on. Um, in terms of documentation, and generating documentation and getting, you know, HS codes right and things like that. You know, if your job is copy and paste, that's a short term. That's a short term job. Those jobs are going away. Yes. And, and I think, you know, systems and machines can copy and paste a lot better than humans can. A lot better, a lot faster, yeah. Uh, let, let, let's talk consolidation for a moment. I mean, how do you see the future of the, of the industry? Because I know that you have some clear thoughts on this. Yeah, I think... We're going to see in this industry what we saw in banking and finance over the past 30 years, 20 years, is we're going to see a lot of consolidation. There are 190,000 registered freight forwarders in the world. Those are registered, but probably a lot more than that. I think if you go to the Wikipedia page for freight forwarder, you're going to see a couple of guys sitting outside of a, like a, a signboard in Shanghai or something, right? basically a garage. And so anybody can be one. And that doesn't mean you're going to be successful. It just means there's a lot of fragmentation in that market. So it's ripe for consolidation. The other thing that you're going to see in the space is it won't just go from like, you know, in the banking industry, you used to have hundreds and hundreds of banks in the U.S., right? Hundreds of banks in the U.S., maybe thousands. And now there's six that matter, right? Yeah. There's six big ones that matter. Everybody else is a subsidiary for the most part, right? So you get some small specialties, but mostly it's consolidated. The same thing's going to happen in this industry because it's really about people. All those businesses are consulting firms with financial sales teams on the back end. And you can buy sales firms, right? You can buy sales teams. So what we've seen from the carriers is really fascinating though lately is the carriers realize that the freight forwarders main value add was managing difficult to manage customer situations, right? And having the knowledge in-house. Well, a carrier can buy into that knowledge space very inexpensively, as we've seen over the years. And then it's a matter of how do they operate that business? How can they, what are the economics on that business? We've seen Maersk with Damco, 
right? Um, we're now seeing Maersk kind of distance itself from the carrier space, right? Over time, they're going to rebrand that, repackage that. They talk about going vertical, right? A lot as a firm. I think that's going to become very, very common, going vertical as, as a shipping firm. We're going to see more and more of that. Yes, yes. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting example that you choose with, with Maersk and, and, and Danko because there's not a lot. I mean, now we've seen CMATGA going uh, and acquiring the stake into SIVA, which is, uh, which is somewhat part, I guess, uh, it seems to be following the same, the same lines. But uh, yeah, just to kind of add on your thought, because I was, I was saying this, and I think I was sharing with one of my friends who's a CEO of a freight forwarder, and he was, he was coming from a perspective that actually whoever owns the relationship with the plant has the has the upper hand, and typically the freight forwarders right, have a much closer relationship than the shipping managers of the back end. That's right. So his claim was that as long as you know, as long as the freight the freight forwarder manages to have the technology to, to back up and, and automate all these painful processes and continue to have a relationship with the client, they will actually continue to have an upper hand as compared to the shipping man. I think upper hand is probably the right term to use, though I'm not sure it's the one you wanted to use. Um, but that's that's exactly right. When you drive demand, then shipping lines will work with you. When you don't drive demand, they won't. And when they think they can get the demand themselves, they'll just do that. I think the thing that prevents shipping lines from owning 100% of those customer relationships is one, they don't want to. A lot of it's not profitable business. And it relies on carrier rebate structures, in fact, in order to even manage it. So carriers have historically used the freight forwarders as channel sales, basically, for them. A second piece that your friend mentioned was what we get in the software industry called stickiness. And I think a freight forwarder gets their stickiness not just from the fact that they like to hang out with one another. I mean, maybe it's the case that BCOs really enjoy hanging out with their freight forwarder salespeople and their freight forwarder ops people. I don't know that that's the case anymore. I think those days are becoming less and less over time. But what I, I do recognize is that if you have, if you've sold off or if you've acquired risk from a freight forwarder. If I'm a BCO and I've paid incremental dollars to work with a freight forwarder and that freight forwarder has offset some amount of risk in my business, then that's really sticky. I know I can always go to that freight forwarder for warehouse space. If a shipping line comes to me and pitches a new business, which is why I think it was smart that CMA and, HAP, or CMA and SIVA tied up because now CMA can say, see, with SIVA, they've been doing this for years. Their teams are here. Their teams are in place. No change, Right. For the, for the customer, when in reality it does actually change for the customer because then it ties up the, the provider basis. SIVA now gets better provider uh, status with, with the CMA than they would have otherwise, right? Yes. Maybe it was always the case because of some deal we don't know about. But but my point is like the selection bias is inherent in that relationship, just like it is with Danco and Merck's line, even though they'll tell you no one is the best provider for your shipment. I think that that doesn't matter. Mathematically, there is selection bias like, yes. in, in that process. And, and I don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing, but it exists. Right? Yes. And so we're going to see a lot more of that. And, and SIVA is sticky. And so um, Apex Maritime, Carry Logistics bought Apex Maritime because Apex Maritime had a sticky executive staff. But the reality is that executive staff, you can hire them away after their six-year earnout or two-year earnout or whatever it is, and then you get that stickiness, right? Um, so I think that's the trick that they're going to have is that it's like saying Accenture is stickier than KPMG. Maybe, maybe they're both consulting firms. You can put them on a bid every two years or 18 months like you should do and find out, right? Yes. And so I think that's the, that's the trick that they're going to do, which is why assets, I, I keep going back to this, assets are so important for freight forwarders now. Yes. Really. Yes. Really. yes. Um, 
what what is the most important mark that you want Haven to leave on the industry? Big question, but you know, what's the what's the impact that you wanted to have? Well, so what we're seeing already, the impact that we're seeing with our customers now is that we've changed the economics for their trade. We've completely changed the economics. The expectation now from our customers is that the operational costs are 10x less, at least, than they ever were in the past, right? So they're 10x less than their prior best. And that changes the economics of the commodity trade. So if your commodity share trades at $135 premium, let's say you're shipping aluminum, per ton you're going to sell it at $135 markup to your customer. That's contracted usually. And if you if 25 of that or 50 of that or 100 of that is going to logistics, now it's 10x less from an operational perspective. So I think the thing that's really exciting about working in raw commodities in particular, or logistics generally, but raw commodities in particular, is that the scale is so great that you can save tens of thousands of hours of human life. Like that's the impact that I want to have is like we can save tens of thousands of hours of human life can go into literally anything else is more valuable than copy and pasting. Like I'm obsessed with this. Like people are always like AI is bad, email is bad, all that stuff. But the reality is like that human life can go into literally anything else and it's more, more valuable. Yes. Right. And that's, that's really exciting. I think, right. We can change the economics, which changes the expectation that people have. That's how you have to change industries is through their economics. Um, you can change how much you can pay a laborer. If you've got a mine in Congo, Right? My guess is that labor is not getting paid a whole lot. You can actually afford to do that and maintain your margins. You can have a healthier, more sustainable supply chain. You can get better talent to work with you. I think that's the really exciting thing that we're seeing. Yes, yes. Yeah, so basically your, your, your impact on the overall cost model and then saving 10x is huge. Yeah, it's a massive return. I mean, you save the lowest amount that we've ever saved a customer is something like $25 per, uh, per container. That's the smallest amount. And and in that particular trade, it was already in recyclables trade. So that's basically doubling the margin on a container for them. They, they only make 25 to 100 bucks on a, on a full, fully loaded container on the front end side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's really valuable in terms mm-hmm. of savings. Right? Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a no-brainer for somebody to use. Yeah, it's, it's a really straightforward value proposition when you can go in and say, I'm going to bring you $5 or $10 and you're going to give me yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to be a, a brilliant mathematician to, to figure that one out. Um, uh, Matthew, uh, one of our listeners, was uh, was asking, uh, and I, we had to have the question also <laughs> on blockchain in this podcast. So he was asking, how do we get over the black sheep in the blockchain room, aka customs? Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a big is question. that the black? I think that's that's a really good question um, and very specific. I think there's two things about blockchain. One, we have to mention it in every podcast because you want more listeners. So that's like very straightforward. And we're going to do a of podcasts in the future. IBM is coming with blockchain. So it's, it's that's, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> you should uh, get a demo of the product. <laughs> um, so I think in terms of blockchain, there's, there's uh, so many things, right? So I'm actually a software engineer by trade. And so I have a couple of different takes on it. But I think the reason it's exciting in this industry to start with is because the industry is full of trading. Right. In a global trade, it's people arbitraging some amount of information asymmetry that they have over their, over their part of your counterpart. And blockchain brings about the, the hope of truth, right? The hope that we can all still do that, but then have a true system that we all agree that this is our general ledger across you know, enough nodes. Um, I haven't seen a solution in our industry yet that actually addresses the problem 
that the industry has um, in a way that we couldn't address before. Uh, Haven versus local share drive plus blockchain, right? All these things are just ways of communicating. And I think blockchain specifically with regards to customs, I don't even know that really, and it's interesting, we have customs agents that love it when our customers use Haven because the customs agent gets paid faster. Like everybody's happier, right? So from a payment network perspective, I think blockchain makes a lot of sense. I think it's currently, it's only real valid use cases actually Bitcoin. I think there are in smart contracts if you're on the Ethereum side. But in terms of who initiates that smart contract, that's still done offline, right? It's still like a, a receiver has to be a port to say that across the gate, and therefore across the gate, and that gets registered in blockchain. So um, what we have to do to make blockchain work, though I'm not sure it's worth making work really in its, in its current state, um, is it's a shared database. And a lot of different companies have to agree that they want to use the same shared database which is not happening. The consortiums are small. Um, they're too small to justify the number of nodes required in order to prevent a 51% attack. Um, and each of the banks has now decided to silo their own blockchain, which is the same as just saying that, you know, we're, you know, five of us are getting together and using the same instance of Oracle or the same instance of SAP or whatever. So I, I still don't, I don't think we've seen the real use case in the shipping industry. And I don't know that customs will be the biggest problem. I think the biggest issue will just be that they're all siloed. We did, one of our customers did a blockchain transaction as a test. And they ended up paying uh, a pretty hefty premium in terms of market fees because those are not predictable, right? So your network usage fees, or basically your, your checksum fees, uh, increase or decrease every time. You really don't have any control over it. Uh, so that was one piece that happened. And in the commodity trade, it's really difficult to justify that. The second piece is they said, well, we saved like you know, 30% of the standard manual operation or 70% or whatever the number was. And that's, that's very common for Haven customers too. That has less to do with blockchain. It just has to do with the fact that you've got a decent collaboration system, right? So I think I'm looking for blockchain to uh, first solve payment, uh, international payment problems, um, which the current international payment scheme is difficult to deal with. I think there's a big value in freight forwarders just dealing with payment clearing. We certainly do it for our customers as well. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a sweet spot is in payments right now. Um, yeah. It's not a not as anonymous as everyone says. For some reason in the industry, everybody talks about how anonymous you know blockchain payments are. They're not really that anonymous. Um, it's actually pretty trivial to find out who made the payments. Um, and I think that just because they're encrypted from a record perspective doesn't mean all the metadata is encrypted. So um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how how that uh, rears its ugly head here when, when people find out where that model is going. Yeah. And I need to I need to bring this up because I asked the same question um, to uh, to to Professor Sheffy, uh, who's the dean of the, um, the director for the transportation and logistics uh, uh, at uh, MIT, and, uh, and asked him what is the view on blockchain. And he said that blockchain is blockchain is as overhyped as RFID was back in the days. Yeah, which goes contrary to all the things that you read on LinkedIn or wherever you go and you see blockchain everywhere, but. In, in actuality, what you were saying is that there's very few actual case studies, uh, you know, real real case studies uh, being done. It's mostly demos, or you know, it's more like a proof of, of concept somewhere, but it's not really applicable yet. And even for payments, I mean, I was reading, and I'm not an expert at all, right? But I was reading that it's it's really slow. I mean, to 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 make it is fairly slow. I mean, you cannot uh, compare it to the MasterCard or Visa system at all. Well, so actually, well, I, I'm going to disagree respectfully on the last point because mm-hmm. I think that 
blockchain uh, transactions on the Bitcoin on Lightning Network specifically for Bitcoin, okay. it's actually much better than a bank because it happens 24 hours a day. You don't have to wait for the payment to clear the next day. Um, it happens within minutes or an hour, right, versus a, a, an eight-hour to 18-hour wait period. So I actually think that it is very good for international transactions in terms of when it hits your Visa card, your Visa and MasterCard front-ending that. And it really depends on who you want to be your front-end one of the bigger problems with blockchain is that, yeah, I don't see too many use cases. I see plenty of use cases for it, but they're all satisfied by current technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, it, it just offers a hope, right? I think right now it's just a cool technology that there should be a lot of demos about. We should be doing this. Like I was hacking on the internet when I was like, I don't know, like 14 and I ended up making a career out of it. Right. And so I think, you know, that was really early on. That was before we had proper e-commerce and we had shopping carts written in Perl scripts and all these sorts of things, right? So I think you have to start hacking early on and eventually something will come out of it. It is a shared database. The concept is really cool. Like mathematically, we can have a shared database. In terms of, yeah, it, it's overhyped for the shipping industry, but hopefully that hype leads to investment, which leads to some green shoot coming out of it, which I would be excited to see. But mm-hmm. um I think the payment the payment thing has been made a, a big deal of because early blockchain was so slow for clearing, or early Bitcoin was so slow for clearing, but now it's much faster. Lightning mm-hmm. network transactions are really, really fast mm-hmm. and pretty low cost relative to, mm-hmm. to the total cost. And, and and there was another question from uh, from Matthew, just to move a little bit from, from blockchain. So he was saying, apart from price and service, what topics do you see driving PPL <laughs> selection in 2019? And I, I know that you talked also about assets. And, um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's the that really is the big thing. If, if um, customers are going to less and less, how uh, should I say this? Um, customers are going to demand more and more of their three PL, and that's they're not going to pay a hundred dollars for ISF filings and you know fifty dollars for you know BL changes and things like this. Those that that business is gone. It's dying or gone, and. The other side of things on the 3PL side is, is that that was a really high margin business for a company like a DHL to have. And that high margin is not there anymore. You can no longer justify labor arbitrage. I don't care if it's in Thailand or Philippines or wherever you have your labor. That labor cost is increasing. The price the customer is willing to pay is decreasing because systems like ours are coming about. And so there's a cross when that business doesn't even work anymore. And if DHL is struggling for e-commerce transactions and they're struggling to maintain a 3PL, then it just doesn't doesn't work any longer. So I'd say when you're if you're a customer, any of our customers, if they're looking at three PLs at all, they're looking at them primarily to assist on a particular trade line where they need localized customer service support. So they need somebody okay enough to respond down there, right? Better than okay, and they need um, a local asset to justify it. They need warehouses, right? You need you need some sort of asset as a differentiator. Um, it's not like everybody doesn't have plans. Everybody has plans, of course, that they charter. But the fact that you're willing to take that risk, which is something the customer is usually not willing to do. I mean, if you're Apple, you're buying you know, your own 747s if you really wanted to and, and cutting FedEx clean. But but I think right now it's really just looking and making sure that they have assets, good customer service, which is not the case right now for most of the PLs. Uh, they have assets and they don't select against their customer. You know, three PLs that choose the right provider for their rebate structure are not helping their customers and that business is going to go away. Customers are getting smart. CFOs are starting to take a look at the supply chain teams. That business is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, 
how about let's talk a little bit about the, what, about what we do, right? About about talent, about people, about uh, and it's, it's it's so important, right? In, in startups, it's vital because it's the key to the growth of the company. How did you? How do you hire uh, people in Haven? And what's the key attributes that you look for? This has changed a lot over time, as you might imagine. I mean, it's a very different industry than advertising or or than um, than than finance. Um, first, I would say that the product that you build, the culture you have, the types of customers you get, are all a result of the type of people you hire. And that's something that you know you, you almost have to learn. Every new industry you have to go in, you, you have to relearn that concept over and over again because you think you want one particular thing and it doesn't work out. So I think that's changed a lot for us over time. We've become far more transparent in the hiring process. We were very opaque. We were very like, we didn't tell anybody anything about us in the hiring process. We didn't mention numbers or anything like that early on. And I think, um, I think we also early on prioritized people who had industry knowledge over over um, people who had technology experience. And that's changed over time as well. The more we've acquired in the industry knowledge side, the less we've needed that, and the more we've focused on on uh, talent that's really curious, has a technical background, has been there and done it before. And I think that's the thing that, um, that kind of changes over time. People are the most important part of the business. Haven's going to have, if we're successful, Haven has hundreds of different types of products uh, spanning multiple industries. Uh, transportation will be a component of that right over time. If you think about how big a company can get, so if you're going to get that, if you're going to think in those terms, you have to be able to hire people that are the right fit for the, the place that you are now and the place that you're going next, right? Uh, I think that's the big thing. And also, we're not afraid to upgrade at the mm-hmm. company. I mean, we we up-level people. We're very uh, blatant about it. We automate work. We're very blatant about that at the company. Um, you can talk about we, we have you know, that many transactions going to the system. We have like three ops people, and they're all phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's because we focus on automation. We hire people that want to focus on automation. Right? Um, you have to hire for your asset class. We're a VC-backed company. You have to hire people that understand you need a rapid rate of growth. Right, And they can focus on that and think about how do they grow quickly and how do they ensure their customers are successful and things like that. So we look, we look for a lot of those types of things, which are very specific. I think the general thing that I look for, I personally look for, is that if I'm hiring a manager, if I'm recruiting like a, a leader in a company, I want them to be able to hire people better than they are. I want them to attract talent that's better than they are and have the ego to be able to hire that person and help that person succeed. Um, that's not always something we've done right at the company, but that's what we're looking for. right? And we hire people that have a natural curiosity, can take accountability, take ownership, especially in the start. I think you know, early on, if you, the people that you have are the people that's that first 25 that sets the tone for the company forever, right? Uh, PayPal is the best example of the first 25, I think, ever, right? That Elon Musk and like Peter Thiel, all these guys, in that first, uh, uh, you know, it's just like they had all this talent in the very beginning. They got, they understood the mountain they were trying to climb and they focused on it. So I think that's the biggest thing. That's, that's what we look for is curiosity. They've been there and done that. Like at what stage are they in career? Are they for all these types of things? Right? Yes, yes, very good examples. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about the culture. As you mentioned about the culture of the company that attracts the right clients, the right type of opportunities, and you're the CEO, right? So, how do you consciously? What is the culture of Amen, and how do you consciously shape it? 
Um, well, so it's definitely changed. I mean, it's changed over the past six months. It's constantly this evolving, changing thing. Uh, the only way you affect culture at a company positively, you can always negatively impact culture, which I've certainly done at times, but you can positively impact culture with, by hiring. You, you hire the types of people that you want to set the tone for the next stage of the company. And early on, you're going to hire people that are really good individual contributors. And so you're going to prioritize as a culture, you're going to have this like work mentality, right? And as you grow, you're going to prioritize people who have a little bit more strategic background that can really take advantage of an opportunity in a given market. And they're going to bring a new flavor to the company. And eventually you're going to hire people that wear like, you know, suits. It happens, right? Like every tech company gets to the stage, which is great too. You you want that growth. You want that trajectory, right? Those in today's world is more like t-shirts and shirts. They're not really big on suits. I get you. No flip-flops. But yeah, so that's that's kind of thing. So I think we, um, uh, we're we at that stage where we're now in, in scale mode. And so we're growing the team with the type of people who have scale, who've gone from you know, small revenue, which is a large revenue number at, at software firms, bringing a lot of that SaaS experience in-house, right? Whereas we're not prioritizing, like, mega logistics as much as we did at the beginning. And that's usually how that, that works. That's how, you know, it's like rings on a tree. Yes. Basically. You can see at what stage the company is based on the type of people that are hiring. Yes, that's a very good metaphor. Um, tell us a little bit about what's your key learnings obviously it's a very interesting stories uh, that you've gone through you have exited a media company here you are now doing a quite a different industry yeah. as you said less corrupt industry <laughs> what's some of the key uh, key learnings that you've had in your journey as an entrepreneur so far if you were to share with somebody that uh, is thinking of yeah kind of following on the last question honestly the people are the most important part spend you know if you're the CEO and founder of a startup you're going to want to do all sorts of things that you were really good at at previous jobs where you ran product, you ran technology or whatever, ran sales, whatever you did at the previous company. Um, and you should not do those things with the majority of your time. You should hire great people to do those things better than you can do them. Um, because I think for me, at least, there was a natural, there was a natural leaning to look towards on individual contributorship. I mean, I looked at the product and I'm like, well, what about when this button's in the wrong place and the font's wrong, and, you know, that kind of thing. No, what you do is you hire a great designer that's really talented and they take over that role and they build a much better product. And you have to do that in every kind of case. You're, you're more like a servant leader than you are an actual, you know, uh, than you are your natural tendency. My, my default, at least, was that natural. That's what I, that's what I kind of learned. Um, this is the second company I run. Um, even though I wasn't uh, officially CEO of the last company, I did run the exit of the last company and, and, and manage that process Media, freight, logistics, banking, they actually do have some similarities. People need to collaborate. Humans need to do work with one another. And they want to do that work in as honest and transparent environment as is possible for their industry. And so if you provide them tools to help them do that work smarter and more efficiently, they're going to gravitate towards it. That's it. That works in the media industry. That works in the finance industry. It works across the board. You've got trading screen in the finance industry. You've got demand-side platforms in the media industry. Um, and then you have, you know, companies like Haven in the shipping industry. And so I think there's a lot of similarities between those industries because at the end of the day, it's literally all about people. Like, I mean, I can't tell you there's, there's all these sorts of ways to manage a board. There's all sorts of ways to raise money. And, and, um, I would tell startups though, if they're starting right now, don't take strategic money too early. Um, there's a lot of accelerators. 
there's a lot of like you know uh, shipping industry accelerators where shipping lines are getting a piece of the action and freight forwarders getting a piece of the action. Uh, don't do it. You don't need to do it. It's yes. totally unnecessary. Yes. Um, get better at selling your equity if you need to take that kind of money, but uh, uh, don't don't take strategic money too early on. It will completely starve your business. You're never going to affect the balance sheet of first line. Never. I don't care how many billions of dollars you're worth. You're barely going to take a, make a dent in their balance sheet. So focus instead on building a real business that provides value to customers and don't go the easy way out. Yes. My, my example. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for the sharing. Thank you for the lessons. Thank you for the for your for your thoughts about uh, about Haven, about the the growth, and and uh, we wish you all the success. And uh, hopefully, in a few years, you uh, you dominate the market. Thank you very much. Appreciate. It. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamario.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast and if you have any suggestions or any other idea please feel free to write to me i respond to all and also please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other c-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us stay tuned